The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning is Be Killing Sin. Be killing sin. Uh, the text read in your hearing, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. We're going to focus this morning on Romans chapter 8, verse 13. In Ephesians 1, Paul begins that letter with this beautiful description, a, a long sentence, really, from verses thir- 3 through 14, uh, describing all of the gifts and the graces that are ours through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He describes them there as the exceeding riches of God's grace toward us. That's an understatement. The exceeding riches of God's grace. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul refers to the grace of God at work within us as an indescribable gift. That's also true. An indescribable gift. It's a wondrous gift, a glorious gift of God's grace to us. Well, in this letter now to the church at Rome, Paul has set his heart and mind to unpacking the riches of that gift, those gifts, and set his mind and heart to describing that indescribable gift. And so Paul, in this book, so far in the chapters that we've studied together, uh, Paul has been unpacking, if you will, all of those things that are ours, all of those graces that have been lavished upon us, uh, those gifts that are ours in Jesus Christ. Our hearts have been circumcised by the Spirit. Hearts of stone replaced with hearts of flesh. We were dead. God made us alive. We are a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We were deplorably undeserving sinners when God justified us in his own sight through the means of faith alone, apart from any works of our own. What a grace, right? Our sin imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ, credited to him the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death on our behalf, his righteousness imputed to us. And we were justified in the sight of God. Formerly guilty, hell-deserving sinners, justified in the sight of God, declared to be righteous, reconciled to him. We're no longer under condemnation. Praise God. We're no longer under the condemning power of the law. Christ having satisfied the just demands of God's law for righteous retribution. We're no longer under the enslaving power of that principle of sin and death that operates within the faculties of our soul. God, through Christ, has condemned sin in the flesh of his own son. We were placed in union with Jesus Christ through the means of faith, not through the means of our own work. Praise God. We were given the gift of the Holy Spirit through the means of faith. We've been brought into vital communion with the triune God, a communion which will last into eternity, and the triune God has come to make his home with us. Those who do not walk according to the flesh but rather those who walk according to the Spirit. That walk, contrary to the desires of our own old man, that walk, contrary to the desires of our flesh, a walk in fulfillment now of the righteous requirements of God's law, a walk that conforms to life by the Spirit. Amazing gifts, right? And Part of the life of a Christian now, for the rest of your Christian life, is going to be unpacking the the realities of those gifts, the realities of that blessed grace that has been poured out upon us. And by the way, chapter 8, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The Lord has given us life. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Have you gotten a taste of what Paul is so excited about, right? You get a taste of what we around here are so excited about. It's on the basis of those tremendous gifts, on the basis of God's grace to us, that Paul then draws the inevitable conclusion. It's on the basis of that grace, those gifts to us, that Paul draws the only reasonable conclusion that may be drawn. If these gifts and graces are ours, verse 12, therefore, brethren, we are debtors. We are debtors. We are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Listen, I've been set free. If you're in Christ, you've been set free from your enslavement to remaining sin. 
You've been set free from that, that principle of sin and death that operates within your members. The only wages brought to me by the flesh have been the wages of death. I don't owe the flesh anything. You don't owe the flesh anything but warfare. That's what you owe the flesh, right? You owe the flesh the enmity that you once gave to God. You owe that to now to your, to your flesh. I don't, the, I don't owe the flesh anything. You don't need to live one minute longer for the flesh. You've been set free. For if you live according to the flesh, verse 13, you will die. But rather, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul sees such tremendous grace, gifts secured at such an impossibly high cost. He sees those gifts, that grace, as placing us under obligation. The Christian is one who is under obligation to God. The Christian is one who has been placed in responsibility. The gift has been given, and now we're responsible for that which has been given to us. Make sense? We're now debtors, Paul says, debtors to the Spirit to live according to the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, putting off the old man with his lusts, putting on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That means, brothers and sisters, giving proper regard to the law of God. When others in professing evangelicalism today, in professing churches all over the place today, want to disregard the law of God, the Christian is one who gives proper regard to God's law in service to the will of God, in the strength and in the power of the Spirit of God. So in our last sermon together on this text, we considered Paul's main premise from chapter 8, verse 12. Brethren, we are debtors. We're under obligation. We have responsibility. In that sermon, then, we considered two questions from the text that serve to explain our obligation. One, who is it that we're indebted to? Who is it that we're indebted to? Two, what is the nature of that indebtedness? Now, regarding the first question, we're not indebted any longer to the flesh to obey it in its lusts, but rather, and particularly in the context, we are indebted to the Spirit, and we are indebted to live according to the Spirit. Regarding the second question, then, the nature of our indebtedness to the Spirit lies in putting to death the deeds of the body. The nature of our indebtedness, according to chapter 8, verse 13, is to put to death the deeds of the body, and specifically, by the Spirit, mortifying the lusts of the flesh through the agency or the instrumentality of the Spirit of God. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you see how that enjoins us to a responsibility to put to death the deeds of the body? Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. One of the two, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's through the language of verse 13 that Paul introduces us to what Christians for centuries have referred to as the mortification of sin, the mortification of sin. In view of all that God has done for us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, in view of the exceeding riches of his grace that have been lavished upon us in Christ, the duty of the Christian is to be zealous, is to be diligent, to be earnest, to be steadfast in the business of killing his remaining sin. That is the mortification of sin. And that, the reason that we labor in that endeavor, that we are to labor, that, that Paul charges us to labor, is so that our remaining corruption, brothers and sisters, is not given free reign to exist in rebellion against God and his law as it once did. That our remaining corruption is not allowed to stand in opposition to God, but is put down, is mortified. So that the righteous requirements of the law of God, which are a transcript of his perfect character, so that those righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh any longer, but rather walk according to the Spirit. We were bought at a price. We are not our own. Therefore, we need to live for him. Amen? We are to be a holy people. Now, Paul refers to this as our reasonable service. And I want you to see that. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Paul refers to this as our reasonable service. 
There have been centuries of heresies in the church making excuses for sin. You're not going to find any excuses for sin in the Bible. And it's incumbent upon the people of God to fight against sin. We are to wage war against sin. And Paul calls it our reasonable service. Now in chapter 11, the last verse of chapter 11, Paul, among other things, explains that of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Amen? Amen. Okay. Now on the basis of that reality, the end of chapter 11, Paul then charges us in chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. The word means to implore. I'm begging you. And I beg you, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Again, bodies, another reference to flesh, if you will. Uh, Our members, if you will, the faculties of our soul, who we are, that we present ourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's your reasonable service. It's your rational service. It's the only service that makes any sense compared to all we've been given, right? It's our reasonable service, verse two, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you, in your life by the Spirit, in your life as a living sacrifice for him, you may prove what is good, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Charles Hodge said this. He said, in view of God's mercy, whatever gratitude the soul feels for pardon, for purity, and the certain prospect of eternal life, it is called upon to ensure its consecration, its devotion to that God who is the author of all of these mercies. Whatever gratitude you feel should be employed in the service of God to consecrate yourselves fully and wholly to him for having lavished upon you all of these graces. In this, the whole of Paul's discussion, discussion of the gospel then, really Romans The book of Romans is an exposition of the gospel. And Paul's entire exposition of this book, his exposition of the gospel, is brought to bear upon devotion to God. If we understand the gospel, we understand all that has been done for us in and through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, then we consecrate ourselves to him. Right? Paul said in 2 Corinthians, we judge thus, that if he died for all of us, then we died. And if we died, we died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who gave himself for us and rose again. We judge thus. It's appropriate. It's fitting. It's reasonable that having died in him, we should be devoted fully to him. Again, giving ourselves up to the Lord. If you look at Romans chapter 12, our lives are not a dead sacrifice. Our lives, it's they're not a dead sacrifice like all of those sacrifices tied to the altar in the Old Testament. Our lives are to be a living sacrifice laid down where we bind our very selves to the horns of the altar, giving ourselves up to the Lord, abandoning our lives to him. Not being conformed to this world, as Paul says, but rather being transformed. Transformed through the means of or by the renewing of our minds putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit in accord with the will of God. Paul refers to this living sacrifice of ourselves, the total and complete consecration of ourselves to God. Paul refers to it as a reasonable service. And how many today, and maybe you've fallen into this trap before, this way of thinking, believe or think that our reasonable service to God is showing up to a talk on a Sunday morning and then going home and living the rest of the week for yourself, right? Or those that believe somehow that we're going to toss God scraps off the table, so to speak, scraps of our time, scraps of our energy, scraps of our resources, rather than devoting all of them to him, they belong to him. If you're in Christ, you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Glorify God with your members, with the faculties of your soul. When you understand all that we've been given, then you understand it's only reasonable to give back all of ourselves to him. It's only reasonable. Luke 17, verse 10. 
so likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. How many of you, how many of you would raise your hand in here and say, I've done all that I've been commanded to do? (laughs) Not a one of us. And when we have done all that is our duty to do, we have to say, we're unprofitable servants. It was our duty to do. It was reasonable. It's reasonable to do all that we can do. Therefore, brothers, do you see? This is Paul's premise. We're debtors. We're debtors. We've been given this tremendous, tremendous gift. We have responsibility. We've been given, we've been lavished. Grace has been lavished upon us. We're under responsibility. We've been placed under obligation. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. John Owen, let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his own lusts. He who does not kill sin in this way, listen, he who does not kill sin in his way takes no steps toward the journey's end. He who finds not opposition from his sin He who finds not, the one who finds no opposition from his flesh and who sets himself not against it, in other words, you're not embattled with it, in every particular way to kill it to its mortification, that one is at peace with sin and not dying to it. And what does Paul say? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Sin does so remain, sin does so act, and so work, even in the best of believers, while they live in this world, that the constant daily mortification of it is all their days incumbent upon them. It's a requirement for the Christian life, and I know how people hate that word. It's a requirement, a requirement to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, considering the grace that has been lavished upon us. We bristle against those things. Duty has been laid upon us. Necessity, Paul says, has been laid upon me. We've been placed under obligation. So we've answered the first question, to whom are we indebted? We're indebted to the Spirit of God. And we've answered the second question, what is the nature, the nature of that indebtedness? In our time together this morning then, we want to occupy ourselves now with a third question. How do we do it? How do we do it? How do we discharge our debt to the Spirit? How do we mortify the flesh? How do we kill our remaining sin? Can it be killed? How do we put to death the deeds of the body? Now, Paul answers all of those questions in one word from verse 13. In one word, pneumati, by the Spirit, by the Spirit. If By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now think with me. Think with me. The grammar of the word, pneumati, the grammar of the word reflects an instrumental dative. An instrumental dative. A dative of means. In other words, the Spirit of God is the means by which we we are to put to death the deeds of the body. The Spirit of God is the means. We are to put to death the deeds of the body by the instrumentality of the Spirit, by the agency of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the agent by whom the deeds of the body must be put to death. Grammar is very important, okay? The grammar is important. Now notice first with me, there is no other means. (laughs) No other means that Paul mentions. Paul does not say that it is by these various means or by those various means that you may put to death the deeds of the body. He does not say by this means or by that means you may put to death the deeds of the body. He says by the Spirit, by the instrumentality of the Spirit. Now notice also, this is also very important. He does not simply say, notice, he does not simply say, put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. As though no means were necessary, or as though any means would suffice. He does not say, put to death the deeds of the body um, and you will live. He specifically says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. A means is absolutely necessary 
and only one means will suffice. Now, can you imagine for a moment <clears throat> how your battle with sin is going to go if no sufficient means were provided? How's that going to go for you? You know exactly how it's going to go for you because that's, you've attempted that before, haven't you? If you're honest with yourself, brother, sister, you've attempted before to battle sin in your own strength and you know exactly how that went for you. It didn't go good. And I know that for a fact. It didn't go good. How's it going to go if no sufficient means were provided? It's not going to go good. How successful have you been? Not successful at all. Not even in the slightest. Just me and my sin. <laughs> just me and my, mano a mano. Just me and my sin. What is that? That's called living according to the flesh. And what does Paul say? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. No, Paul is saying here that a third party is necessary. A third party is necessary in the fight. And the only acceptable, the only sufficient instrumentality whereby we may succeed in putting to death the deeds of the body is the instrumentality or agency of the Spirit of God who dwells within us. It's the only, it's an absolute necessary means and the only means that will suffice. First, there is no other means. Second, the Spirit of God is the means, meaning that we are the ones who are active in the work. He is the means through which we are to put to death the deeds of the body. Notice again, Paul does not say, if the Spirit puts to death the deeds of your body, you will live. Paul does not say that, if the Spirit puts to death the deeds of the body as though the Spirit by himself, with no effort, with no responsibility on your part, will do the work himself for you. No. Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. One commentator, Douglas Moo, said this, while the Christian is made responsible for this mortification of sin, he or she accomplishes this only through the Spirit. Holiness of life, then, is achieved neither by our own unaided effort, not going to be achieved by our own unaided effort, the error of moralism or the error of legalism, nor will it be achieved by the Spirit apart from our participation, as some who insist that the key to holy living is surrender or let go and let God would have it. But rather... This mortification of sin is by our constant living out the life placed within us by the means of the Spirit who has taken up residence within us. We're to live a life of the Spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we're to put to death, in the words of Doug Moo, we're to put to death the deeds of the body by actively and constantly living out or actively and constantly living in accord with that principle or regulating power of life placed within us by the means of the Spirit who dwells within us, okay? We're going to flesh that out. In other words, the, word is, the work is active on our part. We have to live in accord with the principle of life that has been implanted within us by the Spirit of God, and that work is active, that work is constant, must be constant. Look at Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Let me give you an example of this. Verse 4. <clears throat> Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead. What does that sound like? Does that sound active or passive? It's passive. You have you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. We have been made to die, as it were, in him, in Christ. That's what passive looks like. You have become dead. Through the sacrifice of Christ for us, we have become passive. We have become dead to the law. What did you have to do to become dead to the law? Nothing. Believe. Even the gift of the faith, even the faith is a gift of God. You didn't do anything to become dead. You were made to die in Jesus Christ by being placed in union with him. That's passive, okay? So that, verse 4, you may be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, so that 
we should bear fruit. What does that sound like? Passive or active? That's active. That's active. We should bear fruit to God. Bear fruit is active. It requires effort on our part. If you're going to bear fruit, you need to pursue fruit. You see? It charges us with the active responsibility of bearing fruit to God based upon the fact that we passively died to the law in our union with Jesus Christ. Okay? Look at verse 6. Verse 6. But now, brothers and sisters, we have been delivered from the law. Sounds passive, doesn't it? We have been delivered. Sounds passive because it is, right? Having died or dying to what we were held by so that we should serve. What does that sound like? Sounds active. It is active. We should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. In other words, having been delivered, we now serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. It requires effort on our part. It charges us with the active responsibility of service based upon the passive act that has been done for us in Jesus Christ. Right? You see the, the, the distinction between the two, active and passive. According to Romans 8.13 then, back in our text, our active responsibility based upon all that has been done for us, based upon all that has been given to us, our Act, despite how many people in churches today want to try to convince you that you don't need to do anything. Just believe harder. <laughs> That's not what the Bible says. <laughs> our active responsibility, our ongoing duty is to put to death the deeds of the body. And what Paul says in saying that if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but rather if you put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, you will live, Paul is saying that this is a matter of life and death. Paul is saying that this is a matter of heaven and hell. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you're going to live your life according to the flesh, to the sinful and wicked dictates of a fallen heart, a fallen flesh, you are going to die. Not just die physically. That's not what is enjoined there. What death here encompasses is death in the fullest sense of that word. Not just physical death, but eternal death. Not just physical death, but what the Bible calls the second death. A death that clings to you for all eternity with no escape. You will eternally die. Do you see? Responsibility is of paramount importance. Because if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. That, then, is a responsibility of paramount importance to the Christian. The business of the Christian should be putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Therefore, think about this from Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Does that sound active or passive? That sounds active, doesn't it? Is it just me? That sounds active. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, using the means that God has appointed. Why? Verse 13. For it is God who works in you. Does that sound active or passive? God working in you is passive. God is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. In this fight, this battle, this warfare, we face a deadly adversary. Uh, a deadly adversary, a persistent adversary. If you've been a Christian any length of time, you know that he is a powerful adversary. You know well he will not die easily. This doesn't go away. We're not perfected. We're not glorified the moment we're converted. He will not take it lying down. He will not go down without a fight. That principle of sin and death, that principle that Paul describes in Romans 6, 7, and 8, that principle of sin and death that we find at work in our own members continues even in the life of a believer 
to seek to assert its dominance, seeking to bring you back under the yoke of slavery that you say you've been delivered from, leading you along a path of sin and ultimate death and perdition. Sin is actively seeking to kill you. Your sin seeking to assert its dominance over you is actively seeking to kill you. So where then are we to find the strength? Where, do we, where are we to find the power? Where are we to find the means of putting down this adversary? The Lord in his grace and in his mercy has provided this means to us. Is there anything within you that is truly up to the task? Would you say, I think I can do it. I think I can do it. <laughs> is there anything in you that's going to be sufficient or up to the task? You don't have anything within you with which you can mortify a single sin. Not one single solitary sin can you effectively or sufficiently mortify on your own, apart from the Spirit. Not one. However, our Heavenly Father is gracious. He cares for us. Our merciful High Priest, who purchased us with His own blood, Listen, if God delivered up his own son, how much more then will he freely give us all things? How much more will he freely give us everything that we need to do what he has called us to do? How much more then will he give us of his spirit? He has given us the gift of his Holy Spirit, the agent, the means, the instrumentality through which this otherwise impossible task is going to be, will be accomplished. So what is our responsibility. Our responsibility is to fight the good fight. Our responsibility is to wage the good warfare. And we must do so, we must do so by or through the agency of the Spirit. Paul says that it's in this way you will put to death the deeds of the body and live. Any other way, any other way, and you will most certainly die. So you see, there's an implied balance between the two. Do you see? An implied balance between the two. By the Spirit implies the agency of the Spirit. It implies the work of the Spirit, the strength of the Spirit, the, the activity of the Spirit, the operations of the Spirit. You, putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, emphasizes your part in that, emphasizes the activity of the believer, the effort of the believer, the work of the believer, the strength of the believer, the activity of the believer, the operations of the believer. Ultimately, our own work is simply the means that God uses to accomplish that work by his spirit. Ultimately, our effort is simply the means that God himself uses to see the work done. Dr. Murray explains it this way. He says these two are complementary. They're complementary. The activity of the believer, the activity of the believer is the evidence of the spirit's activity. Now think with me about that. If you're actively engaged in mortifying sin, that's an indication of the Spirit's activity within you to mortify sin. That's an, that's an evidence, if you will, that the Spirit of, of God is at work in you. If you had no concern at all for this battle, that should cause you concern. If, as in the words of Doug Moo, or I'm sorry, the quote that I gave you earlier, <laughs> um, John Owen, if you, have, if you sense no opposition from your flesh and you are entirely unconcerned with putting to death the deeds of the body, then you should be concerned that you're a Christian at all. That's an indication that you're not because you don't have the Spirit. Here, what Murray is explaining is the activity of the believer in mortifying his lusts, that activity is evidence of the Spirit's activity within you. And... The activity of the Spirit is the cause of the believer's activity. There's a balance between the two, and it's a necessary balance. Work out your own salvation. Why? Because God's at work in you. You working out your own salvation is an evidence that God is at work in you to willing to do according to his good pleasure. And, according to Murray, God being in you, doing and willing according to his own good pleasure, is an evidence 
or is evidenced by your activity to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. These two things are in balance and tension, do you see? Now, all this, brothers and sisters, is done through faith. All of this must be done through faith. It's a matter of faith to believe that the Spirit of God is sufficient to the task and able to supply the strength that you need. It's a matter of faith. It's through faith that we have access to the strength that the Spirit supplies. It's a matter of faith. So when you're embattled over your sin, when you take the axe of the Spirit, so to speak, or the, the sword of the Spirit, and you lay it to the root of your sin, and you begin to hack away at it, you can't think to yourself, well, I've been doing this for three minutes. It doesn't work. <laughs> it's a matter of faith to believe that the Spirit of God is sufficient and able to mortify your lusts. It's a matter of faith to believe that this is the only means and that he is a sufficient means to put to death the deeds of the body so that you may live. The Spirit of God is sufficient. Ephesians chapter 1, turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul opens this letter with a tremendous accounting of all the spiritual blessings associated with salvation, all those blessings that are ours in union with Jesus Christ. Election, predestination, adoption, our acceptance with God, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, his abounding grace toward us, the exceeding riches of his grace. We've been given an inheritance and the gift of the Spirit, who is the guarantee of that inheritance until our full and final redemption, all of that to the praise of the glory of his grace. Right, Paul, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's what Paul has been doing in Romans, outlining all of the gifts and graces that have been given to us through Jesus Christ. Verse 15, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, so that, praying for this, verse 17, Paul is praying for this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Right Now that spirit of wisdom and revelation is not a reference to our spirit. The spirit of wisdom and revelation is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit was given at conversion, but Paul's prayer here is that the spirit, the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation Paul's prayer is that the Spirit might impart to you wisdom and revelation, that we might grow in our knowledge of him. Verse 17, do you see? And if we grow in the knowledge of him, Paul knows that we will live in light of that knowledge. We'll live in light of that knowledge, live with hope, live in an anticipation of future glory, and live in resurrection power. In other words, Ephesians chapter 1, 15 to 17, in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, in our knowledge of him, there is an experience of the fullness of what has been given to us. As we grow in our knowledge of him, we grow in our experience of all the fullness that has been bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ. That knowledge of him is so that we may experience it more and more as we grow in our knowledge of him. Make sense? As we grow in learning something about hope and glory and power, we experience something more of hope and glory and power. Verse 18, in the eyes of your understanding, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened so that you may know, and that is know experientially, Okay. The eyes of your understanding, your mind renewed, your understanding, your knowledge of him growing, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened for the purpose that you may experience what is the hope of his calling. Two, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And verse 19, three, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty omnipotent power. 
That same power, verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that age which is to come. In other words, his power is exceedingly great exceedingly great, and his exceedingly great omnipotent power is exercised toward us who believe. It's the same power. That same power is made available to you through faith. That power made available to you through faith is the same power that was at work in Jesus Christ when God raised him from the dead. The same power. It is resurrection power. In other words... The resource of power (laughs) available to the believer through faith is enormous, is indescribable, it's immeasurable. He would say, and finally in chapter 6, verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of your own might. No, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Why? Because you have no might. (laughs) You have no might. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Why? Because his might is immeasurable. He is omnipotent. It is exceedingly great. And that power, brothers and sisters, is exercised through his spirit. It's exercised through his spirit. Now, again, we come to a point, as we have many times before, where we we reach this intersection, if you will, between our knowledge of him, our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and our experience of him or our living the Christian life where knowledge and doctrine and truth meets life. Do you see? We come back to that that intersection again. This power, the power that God makes available to us by his spirit through faith, that power comes through our knowledge of him, our knowledge of him. Now think with me about this pattern. We see this pattern everywhere in the New Testament. Think with me. Again, back to Paul and Paul opening this epistle to the church at Rome. God has given us great and precious gifts. God has has lavished his grace upon us. A renewed mind, a new heart, renewed affections, renewed desires, a renewed will. He gives us the truth, his truth, the truth about himself the truth about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, the truth about the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gives us the truth about our salvation. He gives us the truth of all that we have in union with him. That truth is applied, enlightened in our understanding by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation who enlightens our understanding and renews our mind the spirit of wisdom and revelation who dwells within us. That truth applied by the spirit is applied to a renewed mind, a new heart, new affections, a new nature. His truth informs our understanding as our understanding is enlightened in the knowledge of him, in the knowledge of his truth, we then know something more, don't we, of the hope and of the glory and of the power that is ours in him. You see? An informed faith in him fuels new affections, fuels our affections. Listen, we we all know people, we all know people who study scripture like it's an academic exercise, right? They study scripture and for all of their knowledge, for all of their learning, they never come to a knowledge of him, right? For all of their learning, they never come to a true knowledge of him. Those are ones who can study the Bible, 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 and their hearts are never moved by the truths that God reveals to us there of all that he has done for us, undeserving sinners. If your heart is not moved by his revelation, you're not a Christian. This word, his truth, moves us. It fuels our affections for him. If it doesn't fuel and move your affections, there's something wrong, something wrong in your heart. So an informed faith, as our faith is informed by his truth, by his word, our affections are inflamed. Our, uh, it fuels and drives our affections for him. New affections 
strengthen our resolve. It's from the seat of our affections, our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, that our will is then engaged. And by our will, fueled by those affections, all through faith in Jesus Christ, believing upon him for all that he's done for us, we take up the means of grace that he has appointed. And the Spirit of God uses those means or applies those means like an axe to the root of your sin, and we hack away at it. (laughs) In the power, in the strength that the Spirit of God supplies. Do you see? All of this comes together and is important to consider together. How is it, how is it, then, that we utilize the agency of the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body? How is it that you utilize the agency of the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body through the means that God has appointed? Through the means that God has appointed. God has appointed means through which, to what end? God has appointed means through which you may know him. You may know the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, all that he has done for you, that you may embrace that truth through faith. The more that I know him and all that he has done for me, certainly the more that I hate my sin and hate my rebellion against him, but as I grow in my knowledge of him and all that he has done for me and a subsequent hatred for my sin, that applied to my heart and mind by the Spirit of God informs my faith, fuels my affections, drives my will, strengthens my resolve, and I take up the means to hack at my sin. Do you see? It comes through a knowledge of him. As we grow in our knowledge of his word, our knowledge of his truth, our knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and all that he has done. The more that we look to Jesus Christ, the more that we become like him. Why is that? How is that? It's this very process, do you see? In our knowledge of him, we grow into Christ's likeness. It strengthens our resolve to turn from sin, to put to death the deeds of the body. Paul says, listen to this, flip the page. We're in Ephesians 1. Just flip the page to Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3. And look at verse 16. Paul prays, again, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. He prays that he, God, would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Can you derive strength from the spirit? Absolutely you can. Paul prays for it right here. And the power that is available to you through faith by the Spirit is the same power that he worked in Jesus Christ when he raised him from the dead. It is an immeasurable, inexhaustible power. All the power you need. Is the Spirit a sufficient means to fight sin? Amen. Amen. Believe it. Believe it. He prays that God would grant to you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He prays that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend. What does that point to? That we may know, that we may understand, that we may have our minds renewed, that we may grow in our knowledge of him, that we, verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That you may know him. Do you see? All that he has done for you, his love for you, all that he has lavished upon you, that you may know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And that, brothers and sisters, is speaking of our Christian experience. That we may experience in our Christian lives all the fullness of God. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do, because he is (laughs) all-powerful, able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us by his Spirit, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It all eventuates, it all terminates upon his glory. How is it? Are you figuring it out with me yet? How is it? How is it that we utilize the agency of the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body? How is it that we employ the instrumentality of the Spirit 
in our lives to put to death the deeds of the body. We abide in him by his spirit. We learn of him by his spirit through the means of his word applied by the spirit. Listen to this from John 15. John 15, verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Someone comes, I'm having difficulty with my sin. Right? This sin is plaguing me. I fight, I fight, I fight, and I cannot overcome this sin. Tell me how you're fighting. Are you reading the word? No, I just don't have time to read the Bible. Are you praying? No, I really don't have time to pray. Are you submitting yourself under the preaching of God's word? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday school, small group? No. What, what are you doing? <laughs> like what, what, what tools are available to you that, right? God has appointed me. It doesn't work. Ah. Uh. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, which is exactly what you're trying to do, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, how much can you do? Precisely nothing. Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, anyone who attempts to put to death the deeds of the body by the flesh, that one is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and what? My words. And my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. God, help me, right? In this battle against sin, help me to put down, put down this lust which seems to plague me at every turn. God, please strengthen me by your spirit. And behind that desire, good desire, behind those affections, behind that holy hatred for your sin, behind that love, of the, uh, love for Jesus Christ, Put your steadfast, fervent, earnest, diligent, zealous pursuit of all the means that God has appointed, put that behind your prayer. If you don't put that behind your prayer, then your prayer is, is, is hypocritical and, and empty, right? God, please help me mortify the deeds of the body. And then you do nothing that God has said to do in order to put to death the deeds of the body. Well, that's, a, that's an empty presumptuous prayer. Do you see? If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. How do you bear much fruit? By abiding in him. His words abiding in you. And it's in this way you will be my disciples. The business of the Christian is to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. The deeds of the body are those things we do when we present the members of our body as instruments of unrighteousness. Paul refers to them elsewhere as lust of the flesh. Those acts of sin associated with our old man, that old man that has been crucified with Christ, those acts of sin that include words, thoughts, actions, desires, imaginations, unrighteous deeds of the body. Putting them to death Involves starving them. Involves cutting off their supply lines with great diligence, with creativity, with thoughtfulness and insightfulness. Cutting off every supply line that leads to that deed of the body. Cutting off the hand that offends, so to speak. Plucking out the eye that offends and casting it from you. The Lord said that it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. However, it's not merely the work of cutting off sinful branches that you must do. We must strike at the root of the tree. Those lusts, those deeds of the body must be starved 
out, cut off. The Lord said that the deeds of the body proceed from a deeper source. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, and it's those things that lead to sinful action. You see? So the supply line that feeds our sinful deeds, the deeds of the body, is the condition of your heart. The condition of your heart. Paul says further, Romans chapter 8, that it is the mind that is set upon the flesh. A carnal mind that is enmity with God. A carnal mind that cannot subject itself to God. Is not subject and cannot subject itself to God, to the law of God. And so to stop the wicked fruit, you have to deal with it at its root. You can't simply continue to hack away at the branches. You have to deal with the heart. And all of this is conceived of by Paul in his use of the term flesh. If you put to death the deeds of the body, if you live according to the flesh, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You have to deal with the root and the fruit. Do you see? And you cannot leave the root untouched. You must employ the means, the instrumentality of the Spirit, through the Word of God, to hack at the root of your sinful tree. To deal with the heart and to deal with the mind before a rotten root results in wicked fruit. Now, Paul says, again, you do this by the agency of or through the means of the Spirit. In context, in context of Romans chapter 8, that means setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Right? Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Well, what are the things of the Spirit? Speak practically. What are the things of the Spirit? Those things which testify of Christ. Those are the things of the Spirit. What is the Spirit's role? The Spirit's role is to testify of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you grow in your knowledge of Him, you put to death the deeds of the body, right? It's so, those things which testify of Christ. Those things which Christ has done for undeserving sinners through the gospel. Those things of the Spirit are things of the Word of God, God's revelation to us the realities of life by the Spirit. Isn't the Word of God called the sword of the Spirit? What is a sword used for? Killing. <laughs> Killing sin. <laughs> Hacking sin. The role of the Spirit is to reveal Christ to us through the Word. And it is through a revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that we are strengthened according to our inward man. Think with me. How is it that we are to lay aside every weight? and the sin which so easily ensnares us. What does Paul say? How is it that we're to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us? How is it that we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us? How? How? We're to look to him, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, for the joys that was set before him, endured the cross, counted the shame of it a, a small thing, and has sat down now at the right hand of the throne of God. Lest you, brother, sister, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls in your own battle with sin, consider him. Look to him. Consider the hostility that he himself endured from sinners against himself, and consider that you have not yet resisted to the point of bloodshed in your striving against sin. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from Christ, sin will fester and grow. Apart from Christ, your sin will wreck and ruin you. Strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith, then, brothers and sisters, when temptations come, whatever those temptations may be, the spirit comes through for us with strength. Through the means of faith, the Spirit strengthens us. In our knowledge of Him, the Spirit strengthens us. In our embrace of all that He has done for us, the Spirit strengthens us. And that strength which the Spirit supplies is sufficient. And it abounds to our aid such that we may put to death the work of our remaining sin and emerge from the battle with a clear conscience and a good testimony. The Lord told Paul, right? Paul had 
prayed, asking for the Lord to remove that messenger of Satan that was plaguing him, and the Lord refused to do it because Paul, uh, like we all do, needed humbling. And God's response to Paul was, my grace is sufficient for you, my grace. So what was Paul's response to that? God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is all you need. This thing you can weather, you can overcome, you can persevere through. Why? Because God's grace is sufficient for you to do that. His grace is sufficient. So what is Paul's response? I'm going to boast in my weakness then, right? I am weak. I have need of help. I have need of the Lord's help. You, brother, sister, you are weak. You can't just presume to live your life day in and day out as though you're not. Depend upon God. Depend upon his spirit. Paul says, I'll boast in my weakness because in my weakness, God's strength is made complete, is shown to be full, is shown to be perfect to my circumstance, is powerful to help in my time of need. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, and the Spirit of God is the dominant force at work in your life, no longer that old man, no longer that principle of sin and death, you're no longer enslaved to that principle. The Spirit of God is the dominant force at work within you. And the Christian, indwelt by the Spirit of God, cannot help but to live a life of earnest, active, fruitful mortification of sin. There are times when we wax and wane in that effort. There are times when we can be discouraged in that effort. When that effort is difficult, but there will be a battle. There will be a battle. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged in it. Take up faith. Grow in your knowledge of him. Pursue the means of grace and hang in there. The Lord will see you through. He is faithful to his word. There are times in the Christian life when those who have put their faith and trust in Christ not only fail to kill sin, they fail to even resist it. <laughs> repent of that neglect. Repent of that sin. But don't turn away from following after Christ. Uh, pursue the means that God has appointed. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Don't be discouraged. His grace is sufficient. And His grace will be seen to be sufficient in your weakness. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's a right application of that text. <laughs> Unlike the football games and the baseball games and the all other sports. <laughs> I can do this through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who strengthens me by his spirit. We, brothers and sisters, can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Take up the sword of the spirit and lay it to the root of your sin. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we are grateful to you for this uh, gracious promise from your word. And we believe you. We take you at your word, Lord. We uh, now, we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that by the agency or the instrumentality of his spirit, uh, we, through faith, can mortify the lusts of our flesh. We've seen it, Lord. We, we've seen your faithfulness in this. Uh, we would testify that uh, from the time we were converted, those who have been saved or converted for any length of time would say, that we've seen various lusts mortified. Uh, we've seen you uh, work uh, to produce holiness within us, and we testify that that has nothing to do with us, that apart from you, we could not have done that ourselves. We ascribe that, attribute that to a work of your Spirit within us, and we are grateful, Lord. But we also know, plagued by various sins, um, that we fight this battle until uh, you finally glorify us, Lord, when the battle will be no more. And we have this charge from your word that the business of the Christian in his day-to-day -day life is going to be the mortification of sin until we are glorified. So we pray, Lord, in light of that spiritual warfare, that battle, that you, God, would be very gracious to us. Help us, Lord, uh, protect us from brazen sin, from high-handed sin. Protect us, Lord, from unknown, unseen sin. Protect us, Lord, from 
small compromises here and there that give way to greater and greater sin. God, please, by your Spirit, help us to mortify or to put to death the deeds of the body. We acknowledge our own weakness. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And we plead with you, Lord, for your strength to be at work in us. The same strength that was at work in Jesus Christ when you raised him from the dead. We believe you, Lord. Please work in us with that strength by your Spirit to help us, Lord, as we seek to honor you, seek to obey you in this, um, seek to pursue a life of holiness and a life of consecration, a life of devotion to you. We need you, Lord, apart from you again. We can do nothing. So thank you for these promises. If there's anyone here, Lord, who knows nothing of this struggle, who's still wallowing in their sin, living life after the flesh, I pray, God, that you would open their eyes uh, to see the foolishness and the utter futility of that wasted, wasteful life, and they would turn to you in faith and be converted, that they may worship and praise you in eternity. May we be trophies of your grace, testimonies of the goodness and mercy of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be so to the everlasting praise of the glories of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.